0: we're going to wrap up these holy days today. We, um, we are at the Feast of Trumpets. We left talking about the, uh, the rapture of the church and how that day, the Feast of Trumpets, uh, points to the rapture of the church as well. Remember, Pentecost is the beginning of the church, or pointing to the beginning of the church. And then the Feast of Trumpets points to when Jesus Christ comes back for his church, or the, technically the end of the church age. At Rosh Hashanah, in the, in the way, they, the liturgy, if you will, of, the, of that day when it's kept by Israel, they would blow what was called the last trumpet. The last trumpet heralded the end of the old year and the beginning of the new civil year. Remember I said, just to review, that there are two years on the Jewish calendar that are very important. There's the religious year, which starts at Passover, and then the civil new year, which starts at the Feast of Trumpets. So this is the beginning of the Civil New Year. So the last trumpet is blown to sort of ring out the old year and ring in the new year. On the Feast of Pentecost, they blew the first trumpet. And on the Day of Atonement, they will blow the great trumpet. So trumpets are used to signal many things. And I reviewed with you that in Numbers, when Moses is given the instructions to build the first silver trumpets, and then he used shofars as well, ram's horns, how he would he was told how to use the trumpets to signal the assembly of everybody, or just to single the, signal the assembly of the heads of the, the, the families, if you will, or the, or the sections of Israel, or the heads of the, uh, the, the uh, tribes of Israel to come to the tent of meeting. So trumpets signal very important milestones, very important commemorations, but they also can signal the beginning of war, or the warning of war. It depends on how the trumpets are blown. But do not confuse the trumpet signals of assembly with the trumpet signals of judgment. As you learn more, you'll see the more use of trumpets in Scripture. So try never to confuse those two. There are are trumpets that are, are associated with the judgments in the book of Revelation. Now, if you've studied the book of Revelation, you would see those trumpets. And if you have seen those trumpets, don't confuse them with the trumpets of assembly or the trumpets of marking the new year or ringing out the old year. Okay? There is very strong evidence that just as the trumpet of Rosh Hashanah being sounded signifies the end of the civil year, the civil year time period from the previous Rosh Hashanah to the beginning of this, you know, this particular year's Rosh Hashanah, this same trumpet being sounded signifies the end of the church age. And that's the trumpet that we've talked about in 1 Corinthians when we hear the last trump at the last trump when we will be changed, when we will meet the Lord in the air, that's, the, uh, that's analogous to what day signifies and how the trumpets are used. Some might say that just as Passover fell on a certain day and, and Jesus, Jesus' sacrifice fell on the exact same day and even to the hour, if you were here a few weeks ago, remember we, I showed you that Passover not only points from the beginning of its inception to Jesus Christ, but it also commemorates him as well. But the key is, is at the time Jesus Christ came, and as scripture says, at just the right time, which means it had to be exactly the way God put it for him to be Messiah. We showed from scripture that Passover, there was a liturgy to the service, and it, you know, at certain hours of the day, you would bring the sacrifice in, and at the, at the next hour, the ninth hour, you would actually kill the sacrifice. And we showed you that Jesus Christ, the account in, in uh, Luke and Matthew, showed these things happening to him at the exact hour as the liturgy of Passover. Now that is amazing. That, can that be coincidence? It's not. If anything, it shows you the exact hyper-control that God has over all of history down to the exact second. You think about that. So <clears throat> the reason why I'm saying that is because someone might say, well, if we're looking at... Passover and we can know and it actually was predicted exactly when Messiah would come not come but I mean exactly when he would be sacrificed by the way just as a side note you notice how there is no detail on when Jesus was born in scripture we can figure it out and I think you should know that it wasn't on Christmas but the key it was probably it was in the fall of the year and if you read my notes in the beginning about Genesis and how the stars map out the seasons and the times of assembly and and God's plan you'll see that I map out it's pretty close to we can know to when when the world was created and also when Jesus would have been born but I don't want to get into all of that here that's all in my notes but the key is is if we could see that God mapped precision into Passover for Messiah to come so that no one could make a mistake and say that Jesus was not Messiah at any level if we're saying that, well, Feast of Trumpets shows when the last trumpet's going to sound and we're going to be raised incorruptible and we're going to be raptured, shouldn't we be able to know exactly when that's going to happen? Well, the answer is no. <laughs> because, first of all, God said specifically that no one will what? No what? The day or the hour, right? So we have to take that into consideration. But also, Jesus commands us to watch. As, and it's not just a suggestion, it's a command to watch And to try to figure out, not exactly when he's going to come, because that's a fool's game to do that. We've heard of many preachers and other organizations that have tried to do that. And the world was going to end. I mean, Jesus was going to come, what, 1972 with the Worldwide Church of God. And uh, in the 80s, uh, there was a book called Eight Reasons Why Jesus Christ Was Coming Back in 1988. Anybody ever hear of that book? I never read it. But the point is, is that you don't want to read it either. Did it happen? No. There was a lot of incidences of prediction of when Christ was going to come, and that was the second coming. Say again? You can buy it cheaper now. Yeah, I bet you can. <laughs> and hopefully, you won't find it at a Christian bookstore. <laughs> you may be able to. I don't know. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of fire sales on books like that. That's that's probably true. Um, so the key is is that we we only know what Jesus tells us and that we will not know the day or the hour. Now, there's two incidences we have to separate here. His first coming we know about. His second coming is not when he comes for us in the rapture. The second coming we can can know and that's going to happen when the seven-year tribulation hits. Okay, that's in Revelation and we'll get there at some point, but my point here is that when are we going to be raptured? Because we would love to know that, and Satan would love to know that, too, because the key thrust of the rapture is it's the end of the church age. And what is the major hallmark of the end of the church age? Not just that we're taken home, right? That's right. The stopper, he who restrains, which is the Holy Spirit, will be taken out of the way. And you think you've seen evil now? You do not know what evil is. Thankfully, you won't be here, and I won't be here to see the evil that will will come. So let's talk about that for a minute we can predict and we can show and prove to the hour when Jesus Christ was going to be sacrificed and who it was going to be because of that. And yet we can't quite understand, even though we know when the Feast of Trumpets is, when the, um, when the time comes exactly for the rapture. So in Jewish culture, as they would prepare for the new year for the Rosh Hashanah liturgy, there would be a day of silence before the blowing of the final trumpet. Okay. This was called in, in Israel and Jewish culture, the hidden day. Anybody ever hear of that? It's called the hidden day. And the hidden day was there, was made so that Satan himself would not be aware of the sounding of the trumpet. That was the reason for this thing called the hidden day. And it was before the last trumpet. So right away, we're seeing that there's a level of obscurity built into this, isn't there? Okay. And, and so that's, that's how we would know. This is now, last week my wife was mentioning just at the end of the class that in Jewish culture, in marriage, in the ceremony, there also points to how the ceremony, well, how the ceremony rolls out, points to how God deals with his people and and the rollout of of the, the history of the church, okay, how it was going to happen. So here's how it goes. The selection of a bride was made by not the son, but the father in the Jewish culture talk about yentas. <laughs> Imagine daddy picking out your bride. Where's my son, Travis? There he is. I may have to do that for you. At least
1: you have someone to blame. Yeah, that's right.
0: <laughs> oh, that is good. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> you gave me that woman. <laughs> That's right. Hey, didn't Adam say that? <laughs> Yeah, didn't the father pick out the bride for Adam? And he even got angry. Ooh, yeah. Boy, that opened up a can of worms. Thank you very much. <laughs> Maybe I better not do it because you have an advocate now back there, Travis. I don't know. But the selection of the bride was made by the father. And actually, that did bring to my mind what I just said. The selection of Adam's bride was made by whom? God and God alone. right? Not that you all and I should, be, should actually be doing that. Because we're not that good at picking out you know, our brides for our children. But that's right, because then they can always say, you gave me this woman. But that's the way it's, it's done in the Jewish culture. Okay? Also, there was a price. The bride price had to be agreed upon and settled between both parties. This is why in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and verse 20, it states, you are bought with a price. So you and I are bought with the price. Now, the church is what to Jesus Christ in Scripture? We see we, there is the bride, and, and there's going to be what? What is going to happen when we are with Christ in heaven when we are raptured? What's one of the first things that's going to happen? We're going to be, we're going to be given our rewards, right? And, and those are going to be determined by what we've done here and what we've sent ahead of us. And then what happens after that? The marriage supper of the Lamb. So we are the betrothed of Jesus, and that's why it says in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 20, you are bought with a price. Isn't that interesting? We were. The bride price was already paid, and the price was Jesus' life. Isn't that the highest price anybody could pay for their bride? Think about it. The future bride gave her consent to the wedding, and then they became engaged. Now, in the Jewish culture, an engagement is just as valid and uh, binding, if you will, as if the wedding had already happened if they 're already married, so being betrothed was a very serious thing, and that 's why it was made clear when Joseph had betrothed Mary and then found out that she was pregnant and didn 't know what had happened at first. that was a very serious breach, not only because of fidelity in any event, but the fact is is that it was as good as them being married, and that shows how good a character this man Joseph had when he didn't he put her away or he was at, he was at least going to say. This is commensurate with adultery. It's just as bad as adultery, so I'm going to have to put her aside. Remember, he was going to do that, and then, of course the Holy Spirit came to him and, and told him. That's the, the uh, key to this. The bride is chosen. The bride price is agreed upon. The bride then gives her consent to enter what? This covenant. You and I gave our consent. Did Jesus force us to believe in him? No for some of us, it took a long time for us to really say, okay, you're you're wooing me, you're courting me. Um, Okay, maybe later. Ralph and I were talking about that this week, where it takes time. Sometimes it becomes so apparent that you're being called, and yet, you know, not quite ready. So there's this wooing, there's this thing, and finally when you agree, and and you know what the bride price is, and and you're betrothed, and you're engaged, then the bride is washed in the mikvah. It's an it's, it's the purification ritual. You've heard of the mikvah. You've heard of the ritual washings in, in Jewish history. Well, the mikvah can be a, compared. This, this ritualistic washing can be compared to, an old, as, as if it were, an Old Testament baptism. Just as you and I are betrothed to Christ when we first come into the covenant, we're already sealed as his bride. But what's the outward show that we do? We do it here. Right, baptism. Is baptism required? It's not, but it's part of the. It's part and parcel of the whole. I love to use the word liturgy because it really just describes how it's all meant to be, step by step, to show the validity and the efficacy of something of of a ritual. So now the bride is washed in the mikvah. Then after all of this, guess what happens? The groom leaves. He departs and he goes to what? Prepare a place for he and his bride. That's what they did. And when he departs, he goes to prepare a place and it's typically in the father's house or at the, at the at the father's see how the father's involved in all of this. Okay? So he goes away. Now the bride has only to do what? To prepare. But she has to wait for his return. And she does not know when he's going to come back. She doesn't know when he's going to be finished preparing this place. What did Jesus say he was going to do if he went away for us? Prepare a place. And he said, if it were not so, I would, I would have told you that. But I am telling you I'm preparing a place. So when I'm gone, don't despair. Prepare. Be about the business you're supposed to be about and preparing, not only doing the Father's business, but be, be preparing for this wedding which you know you're headed to because we're all betrothed by His buying us, if you will, us being determined by the Father that we, because of our election and our agreement, have, are, are His bride. You see how all of this rolls out? That's, we're getting to the point, though, of this day. And Remember, we talked about the hidden day, too. So this is, this is where I'm headed. <clears throat> it was never known for sure when He was going to come back. The only thing that any bride knew for sure, any, any soon-to-be bride or not so soon to be bride, depending when he was coming back. The only thing she was sure of was that he was coming back. The groom finally, after whatever time period, does come back and return, and often it was in the middle of the night. Now, when I first you know, heard about these things, it was a long time ago, but it's like, why would you want to wake up the whole neighborhood? Because you know, they, he didn't come quietly. I can just imagine, well here, it's pretty, pretty sparse, but when I lived in New York City, you know, any noise, there was tons of people around all the time. And if they, somebody decided to come down the street, you know, going to seek his bride, like I can imagine Fred coming down there to get his bride when they were younger, banging pots and pans. Did he do that? I got to tell you this quick. It's so, it's so hilarious. Back, it was about a year ago, we were sitting in uh, one of the Wednesday night um, <clears throat> prayer meetings. <laughs> I couldn't stop laughing. And here I am sitting, at, you know, next to Pastor Stan and my wife there. I'm, I, couldn't, I couldn't stop laughing. It was so funny. So what was the question that, that he asked? <laughs> He asked if if the groom had ever sung to us. And he says, He's he's looking at me, and I can see him because he's sitting in one of the chairs in the front row. And he says, Yeah, I sung to him. He goes, The old gray mare just ain't what she used to (laughs) be. And now he did it quietly, right? But I saw him, and I'm looking at him, and I heard it. I I still think of it, I crack up. So anyway, so the groom, well, the groom, we'll say the groom returns. The groom chases it, <laughs> And the only thing that ha- we know that happens is that he often is blowing a trumpet, making a ruckus at night. I mean, this is a happy occasion. He's finally ready. And that's why I say to young people here, Travis, I don't know if there's anybody else that's young. yes, a few other youngers. Maybe, maybe not be married. Be ready with your nest first, as best you can. Don't just go off and be married because this shows there's preparation involved. There's going to be a lot of stress anyway, but if you have already a a career going or um, a home or at least the ability to make a home, and of course anticipating children, which we were going to wait two years and that didn't work out too good. (laughs) So be ready. Be ready as you can. So we're saying here that there was a lot of uh, preparation on both their parts. So now he's ready to come for her and she's been preparing all along. The bride is ready and now the wedding ceremony is about to take place and they're going to live in the, in the place prepared, typically to start out with they lived in the Father's house in a section of it and then they moved on their own after that. So let's review the marriage ceremony progression again and compare it to the steps in calling those coming to faith in the, in the, um, of the, you know, for believers in the church age. A person agrees to believe in and, and then through Jesus Christ to be saved. You have to understand, right, that Jesus, it's only him alone. We have to believe in what he did, who he was, and know for sure. The outward public confession is established through the baptism, or our own personal mikvah, if you will, even though we've been purified before that, we're washed in the baptism. And then after that, we're always, and before that too, we're washed in the, in the, uh, in the Word. But it's, it's this mikvah versus the, uh, the baptism, okay? In baptism, what you're showing is that you are now a new person but you're a possession of God you are betrothed but remember what we said being betrothed is as good as being married okay God states that what he did for Israel as he took them as a people for himself and then ready them to enter a covenant with him he basically what he did with them rather is what he's doing with us here's the point um, we're going to go read this in Ezekiel but if you if you're there Ezekiel chapter 16 verse 4 you should be there Baptism is, well, here, applying it, applying all of this for ourselves, I'm going to read a progression here of a narrative between God and his desire for Israel. Okay, so we're going to go there in a minute. I want you to understand that's where we're headed. We're comparing it to his desire for us. Remember, we said that God does not change. His methodology, although custom-tailored for a people's or a time period, does not change. Okay? It really does not change. Just like we talked about the law ad nauseum now, where the law does not change, but yet it is, I can't even say modified. It is actually given to us in more truth when Jesus Christ comes and completes and fulfills the law. And human beings have a hard time with this. So, I, so there's always a, a four type and an, and and, you know, an anti type, if you will, a four type, and then the fulfillment of something in truth and so here we're having the same kind of thing the way god wooed, created israel for himself and then wooed israel and their decision to accept and after they did we, we saw them accepting mount sinai and then he gave them the instructions for the tabernacle and they built the tabernacle and then they built it according to his instructions They prepared the place for him to come and dwell with them and then he instituted the 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 temple liturgy in, in leviticus and we talked about that so you see the progression here it doesn't change it's the same thing in principle with us baptism is after entering into a mutual covenant re- agreement with God through through belief by the Holy Spirit entering into you that's when even though he's already there it's it's, it's the out, out showing of that Ezekiel chapter 16 and verse 4 <clears throat> now here's God talking to Israel but I want you to equate this to you and I as Christians And his love for us and what he has done for us okay on the day that you were born your cord was not cut nor were you washed with water to make you clean nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths no one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you rather you were thrown out into the open field for on the day you were born you were despised isn't that interesting as soon as Israel was created what did we see when we reviewed that Instant, instant attacks, even in modern day. When Israel was reinstated as a nation in 1948, what was the thing that happened like within the very next day? All of the Arab nations around her attacked her. Do you know that as history? It's fact. They only had like, what, 144,000 rifles and, and a couple of Cessnas and some willing men and a few bullets, and they were able to repel those Arab nations. Happened again on Yom Kippur and other times between that point in time. So they were despised from their creation. Okay? Verse 6. Then I passed by and saw you kicking about in your blood. And as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, live. How about us? We're more despised now as Christians by the world. And you can see that even in this country, we're getting pretty despised too. So, is it changed? Is it, isn't it the same kind of MO for Israel, from Israel and, and us as compared, rather comparing us to Israel? So, think about it. Verse 7, I made you grow like a plant of the field. You grew up and developed and became the most beautiful of jewels. Your breasts were formed and your hair grew. You were naked and bare. Later, I passed by. And when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Sovereign Lord, and you became mine. Think of that not only as excellent literature, but think of what he has done. He saved us when we were so despised, it was sort of we were abandoned as children, not even the cord was cut. The placenta and everything was attached to it was just thrown out with the garbage, Right? You've heard of people doing that today? These young girls who are pregnant and they have their babies and they throw them in the dumpster. That's what he's talking about here. It happened to Israel and it's happened to us too. But as he took us and he cleaned us up and then let us live and then we grew into a bride of young womanhood where we become beautiful because of his care. And then we become a beautiful bride. And that's what he's saying here. So when we grew up, he passed by again. And he made a solemn oath and entered into a covenant, right, with Israel and with us, where we both agree on the covenant in our own times, and declares the Sovereign Lord. And at that point, what does he say? You became mine. You getting the picture? Okay. Verse 9. I bathed you with water and washed the blood from you and put ointments on you. Bathe you with water and put ointments on you. This is signifying the Holy Spirit the anointing that the Holy Spirit gives you and in living in you, okay? But the baptism, this is really what it's showing. Verse 10, I clothe you with an embroidered dress and put leather sandals on you. I dressed you in fine, here we go again, linen is a lot of prophecy, a lot of... Um, A lot of meaning tied up in this word linen. We discussed it a little bit a few months ago, and we're going to talk about it more as we get toward the book of Revelation. It's a covering. It's a fine covering. Remember we talked about the linen uh, fencing around the tabernacle? So when you approached it, you saw nothing but holiness. There was no design on the linen. There were no uh, imprints. There were no drawings. It was just pure white holiness as you approached. It's a covering, isn't it? Adam and Eve knew they were naked because it's not that they dropped their linen uh, tunics or shawls or aprons or whatever they're wearing. They were naked, and they knew they were naked, but they knew they were naked when they had sinned because there is this covering of God's Shekinah glory, which was taken away from them. It's going to be restored in the book of Revelation. Of course, what will we get when we are rationed? Clothes of fine white. Ah, So it's restored, isn't it? Think of it. Okay. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments. I adorned you with jewelry. I put bracelets on your arms and a necklace around your neck. And I put a ring on your nose, earrings on your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. So you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothes were of fine linen and costly fabric and embroidered cloth. Your food was fine flour, honey, and olive oil. You became very beautiful and rose to be a queen. Ah, as what? Being prepared as a bride for the King Jesus Christ. Verse 14. And your fame your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty because the splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect declares the sovereign Lord. Do you see the parallels between Israel and us? Do you see this? This is what I'm talking about and that's the marriage supper, the, the proceed. Yes. chooses to make us part of his covenant so you know that's that's the i think the power of this passage is this absolutely God's choice and love for us is the only way by which we have the opportunity to be part of his covenant relationship absolutely correct because he also says he says you know that to israel he said and we reviewed this passage in scripture before a few weeks ago he says i will make them jealous i will take a people that are not a people and make a nation out of them because we also showed in scripture that the new covenant was intended originally for the israelites it wasn't intended for what it was. I mean, we know that God is presiding over all of history, and we know it's all sewed up. So in, in reality, it's intended. But if you look at the flow of the story, it was not intended. But because Israelite reje- Israel rejected God, he chose another people, and he chose a people who were not a nation at all. That's why you and all of us come from different backgrounds, exactly what you said. So this is key. This is showing all of that. So now we've read that. So now let's review the final two days of the Holy Days, or... I don't even want to call them holy days. I want to call them appointed times because that's what they are. They're not holy to be, because there's a connotation there. We've discussed this also at nauseum. There's a connotation that if it's holy, you've got to keep it a certain way. You've got to do certain things. No, 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 no. These are appointed times for us to learn and know. So do, as you see now, we can understand the plan of God and we can prove it through Scripture. There is no question. There is no question if we know what these things signify. That's the importance of them. So let's talk about the last two appointed times or appointed festivals of God, the Day of Atonement and uh, finally Sukkot, which is the Feast of Tabernacles. So we're going to resume the the Jewish marriage ceremony progression here. The believer, right, we're talking about us as in comparison to this Jewish marriage uh, ceremony, now a Christian is left on earth to tend to her new business to prepare, for her, prepare herself for her soon coming new life as a wife uh, to her soon-to-be husband while he is away going about his business of preparing a place for us as Christians. When he is ready, Jesus will return for the Christians. The key point being that there is uncertainty as to when this will be. You see what I'm saying? That's why we can't know when he's coming back for us. and We only know that he is. There's uncertainty, though, just like for the bride She only knew that the husband or the the betrothed, her, her groom, was coming back for her. She didn't know when. It also could be any time of day. It could be at midnight. didn't necessarily have to be. But when he did come for her, what would happen? There would be a shout. There would be a trumpet. You see the analogy here? So the bride did not know when her husband was coming, but did that absolve her of not even worrying about it? Did she, was she supposed to spend her time trying to figure out when she was coming? Is she supposed to send spies to, to the father's house of the, of the groom and watch and see how the building's coming along? Make sure they put the right carpet in there. I want these cabinets for my kitchen. She didn't do any of it. Maybe she tried to, but that wasn't right. Our job, and this is my point, our job is not to try to figure out how far along Jesus is. We're just to be ready. And we're supposed to also like the bride. And here's the key. And this was lost from like the dark ages all the way through just fairly recent times, especially when Israel became a nation again, the doctrine of imminency. It was lost. And then people started figuring out, I'm not going to get into the history of this, but in the last, the last segment, if you will, of the 19th century, it was figured out that Israel had to be back in the land. Even though it was in Scripture all along, it was finally felt that, yes, And it was coming. Remember we talked about the Balfour Declaration and and all of those things that World War I prepared a land for the people. That's when Israel was taken back from the Turks. And then then General Allenby won Jerusalem back, took it from that Turks. And then they decided through a British mandate to what? To make a land for the Jewish people. And then in 1948, it was smaller than it was supposed to be. But it happened. And that is now, as Scripture says, that is when, when Israel's back in the land, the prophecy clock is really getting close to the zero hour. There's a doctrine of imminency that has been, has been around for a long time. Now, way before I was a Christian, I was only 10 years old at the time, but some of you who were Christian, maybe a longer period, certainly maybe adults at that time, remember the, the, uh, the Six-Day War in 1967. What was the capstone of that war? Remember? Remember? Jerusalem was taken by Israel. Jerusalem was returned to Israel. She took Jerusalem, and she wasn't even really planning on doing that. But what happened the following day? They didn't give it back, but they gave administrative control over, if you will, back to the Arabs. But does Israel still own the Temple Mount? Do you see all the consternation today about what's going to happen to the Temple Mount? You can't build settlements, you can't do this, you can't do that. We gotta have a Palestinian homeland and now they're gonna have East Jerusalem. Only only East Jerusalem, that's what we're gonna take. That now, what's the focus? Where is everybody's focus on this little sliver of land and especially on the Temple Mount? But it's this doctrine of imminency. How soon, when when Jerusalem especially, I mean, when Israel especially in 1967, much later than when even Israel became a nation, they won the Temple Mount. This is prophecy. If you look at the prophecy, anybody hear the prophecy of dry bones in Ezekiel? Yeah, look at it. It tells you exactly what happened and what did happen in 1948 and 1967. So, that's the key. As Christians, looking imminently, especially you see the way the world's going anyway. Everybody says it's got to be soon, right? It's got to be soon, it's got to be soon, but this is the key. When Jesus is ready, he will return. We are to watch, and we are to watch as if it could be today. And that is not just a, uh, a phrase. Oh, yes, it could be today. Live that way. Be prepared as a bride. Be prepared with your oil lamps ready, right? Okay. However, when he does come, we will know it because, like in 1 Corinthians, it says, it as says, a matter of fact, I'll read you the passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and uh, verse 51. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at what? At the last trump. For the trumpet will sound, and at that time, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we who are still alive will be changed. You see the significance of the trumpet? So I prove to you that it shows it, but I also prove to you that we are not supposed to know the day nor the hour. We are supposed to know it here. But here, we are not supposed to know it. Okay. Does that prove that? Any any questions? Okay. One last point here. I just want to read it to you. John chapter 14 and verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am, just as the husband comes back for his Jewish bride. Now let's move on to the Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the day of national repentance for Israel. So you see the progression. Now we're at the most solemn day that Israel looks upon, the Day of Atonement. During the physical observance, or the physical liturgy, if you will, of this day, a great trumpet was blown, and the blood of the sacrificed animal was placed on the ear of the scapegoat. Now, you all, do you all know the story of the scapegoat? Have you ever been called a scapegoat? Have you ever felt like a scapegoat? Okay. The scapegoat. <clears throat> the scapegoat was then driven out of the camp to certain death in the wilderness. The blood was p- placed on a goat, and then that goat was sent out into the wilderness and it died. And they knew it was gonna die. They actually sentenced it to death. Here's the point, only the high priest was allowed to come into direct contact, direct presence uh, of God. And only the high priest was applied by, only the blood rather was applied by the high priest on the mercy seat. I, I, I'm, I don't wanna confuse you. I'm getting forward here. This blood was placed, I should explain this. This blood was placed on the scapegoat, okay? And then he had to go into the wilderness. Your payment of your blood, remember blood is, has to be shed because the soul that sinneth shall die. And what does God say about blood? The life is in the blood. So when Jesus shed his blood, his blood was shed for us. It was basically the blood of our sins, if you will, the blood that we should be, that should come out of us when we're put to death for our own sins, is actually put on the scapegoat. And this, finally the sins are put on where they belong, is into Satan, and he's, he's let out in the wilderness and he dies. That's when Satan gets put away. Do you see what I'm saying? That's really what I'm trying to say here. I don't want to get, I'm getting ahead of myself, but I want to explain that piece. Okay, The blood after this scapegoat is put out. The blood is next applied only by the high priest to the mercy seat, which is on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, remember I showed you the tabernacle and I showed you the Holy of Holies place? Only one time a year was the high priest allowed to go into that Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. Remember the mercy seat with the two cherubim where their wings touched? He was supposed to put the blood on the Ark of the Covenant if he did it wrong he would die and I told you that they used to tie a rope to the high priest and they had bells on their tasselet on their prayer shawl so that they would keep on hearing the bells ringing while he was in there doing the whole thing and if they heard the bells stop for too long they might assume he was dead and no one was going in there to get him because they would have a whole pile of dead bodies so what they would do is they would be ready to pull him out by the rope now I've heard by more than one source that this was actually the case. Some say it's, it's conjecture. Some say it's... it's uh, what do you think, Bob? What have you, what have you heard? Yeah, so I'm going to say it was true because the, the Israelites knew that anybody who went to that Holy of Holies could be, would definitely be put to death. We're going to see more about that, but especially the high priest only that once a year could be put to death. That's how serious this was. Okay. We've got about two minutes left here. Only the high priest was allowed to come into direct contact Or into the direct presence of God to make the atoning sacrifice face to face. Who's our high priest? Jesus Christ. Who but him was allowed to go face to face with God and have his blood applied to that mercy seat? No one. You see the analogy here? The day of atonement seals up this whole thing into the most solemn day where Israel is always looking forward to atonement because it, it's the day when their sins are atoned for. The problem with it, as any legalism and any holiness, that you, you know, any holy day where you have all of these rote uh, procedures, it all points to it and they look back on it, but were their sins totally forgiven? No. They had to keep doing the same thing over and over and over and over again. Does that work? How's that working for them? Not too good. So whether you're a Jew doing all of this stuff or a Gentile doing none of it, you're pretty much winding up in the same spot. That's why legalism is no good. But when we understand and apply it to our lives, that's where we are. We're going to wrap up with this and then we'll, uh, we'll just wrap up with the last thing next week and we're going to move to the book of Numbers. Okay? I want to read to you 1 Corinthians, if you want to go there, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8. We're going to wrap up. 1 uh, first, uh, first Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8. One of the most important statements, I think, in the Bible here, I mean, relatively speaking, but you'll see what I'm saying, is right here, the very first uh, sentence in uh, chapter 13, and verse 8. What does it say? Love never fails. That fails. That fails if it's, if it's kept as a law, if it's kept by humans. But if we look at that, not in that way, but we look at it as a map as a plan of god does it fail never and that's the point love never fails but where there are prophecies they will cease where there are tongues they will be stilled where there is knowledge it will pass away for we know in part and we prophesy or we predict in part but when perfection or rather the true fulfillment is finally arriving, the true fulfillment of all of this that we're talking about, all of this scripture that we're talking about. When it's all fulfilled, and that time comes, the imperfect disappears. There's no more need for it. When Jesus Christ came, was there any more need for the liturgy of a temple? Was there any need for a temple at all? Do you and I need to worship at a temple? Would it do us any good if there were a temple to worship at? No. Is this church a temple? No, we don't even call it a temple because we are the temple. So the imperfect, the four type disappears when Jesus comes and he dies. And the day of atonement is when it's all paid for by Jesus Christ. That's the wrap up of it. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. Some say I still do. But that's not in scripture, that's me. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now, we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror, then, when when this fulfillment truly comes, when we're with him, we shall see face to face, just like the high priest saw God, or was with God, face to face, where he dwelled with Israel. Isn't that wonderful? That's awesome. Then I shall know fully, just as I am now known fully. God knows you fully. Would you say he knows you fully? Do you know him fully? No. But when you finally see him face to face, because of what happened, the final wrap-up on the Day of Atonement, you will see him face to face. Last scripture I'm going to read you. Romans chapter 11, verses 25-27. through 27. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening, in part, until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Now, when do we know the full amount of Gentiles, you and I, people like us, have come in? When? When we were raptured. Right? We don't know what that number is, but we know that that will be the number because after that, that's it. Now, there will be salvation after that in the time of the tribulation, but they're not part of the church. We're we'll going to talk about that later. But I want you to see. So when the full number of the Gentiles comes in, and so Israel will be saved, as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So that's it for now. And then we're going to get into the Feast of Tabernacles next week. And we're done with the Holy Days. And we're going to segue into the book of Numbers. Review my notes, the first 50 pages, if you can, this week. We're going to talk about Nephilim. We're going to talk about the Giants, we're going to talk about the attempted destruction of DNA and pollution of DNA. Okay? Some Christians don't like to hear this, but we're going to talk about it because it is the truth. And we're going to get into that next week because when, it, when Moses sent the spies into the Promised Land, which is talked about in Numbers, what scared the... What scared the... the uh, yeah. I was going to try to say it what scared the uh, liturgy out of them. <laughs> the Giants, right? Do you think that they were just big people? Like Michael Jordan? No. So we'll talk about that next week. Have a great week, everybody.